Hi, my name is Pat Cook. Welcome to Zombies au Fromage of Terror and Terroir, where I discuss a zombie movie and then pair it with a cheese. Z's and cheese, let's dig in. I got a treat for you today. 1985 was a great year for zombie movies. There was Day of the Dead from the godfather of the zombie movie, George Romero, plus Return of the Living Dead, which is almost as influential in zombie lore as the original Night of the Living Dead. And as a special treat, today's movie came out that year too. Today, we are looking at Reanimator. I chose this movie because I heard this week of the death of Stuart Gordon, the director of Reanimator. I hadn't quite decided what to do for my next movie. Usually I use a complicated algorithm made of complex metrics and statistical analyses to choose my next movie. Uh, no, I don't. I just wanted to watch something more visceral and goofy than my previous movie choice, Maggie. I liked Maggie just fine. But I started this podcast to discuss zombie movies, not dramas with a hint of zombification in it. Zombie movies don't have to be bloody rampages like Brain Dead, aka Dead Alive, though they're fun. Zombie movies can be insightful commentary on culture, like Dawn of the Dead, 1978, or Shaun of the Dead. They can be witty or character-driven, like Zombieland. They can be intensely claustrophobic, low-budget thrillers like Wreck, that's R-E-C. Or they can be dramatic like Maggie. I just knew I needed something over-the-top and crazy, and Stuart Gordon's death helped me decide on this one. Just a heads up, it has an R rating and an X rating. There's a normal sex scene early on with two consenting adults, but there's a nasty scene towards the end where a naked woman is strapped to a table and a randy zombie has ill intentions for her. Plus, a zombie outbreak where the reanimated are cadavers in the university morgue. It's not sexual at all, but it's still naked bodies running around. So, watch the movie, or don't. Just thought you should know. Okay, here we go. This movie is loosely based on the story Herbert West, Reanimator, by H.P. Lovecraft. You've heard me mention Lovecraft before. He's more popular today than when he was when he was alive. He died in 1937 at the age of 47 and remained mostly obscure most of his life. His influence can be seen in horror movies everywhere. Stephen King, John Carpenter, Guillermo del Toro, Wes Craven, Alan Moore, Roger Corman are all writers and artists whose work can be traced back to Lovecraft. Lovecraft's genre is often called cosmic horror, but today he's used as an adjective to describe works depicting evil and malevolence. Lovecraftian. Funny though, Lovecraft's story, Herbert West Reanimator, 
was not among his favorite stories. He wasn't happy with his work as he was doing it only for the paycheck. That lackadaisical effort is seen in the work as it's quite different from a lot of his stuff. There are a few similarities between the movie and the book, which was actually a series of six short stories. It takes place in Miskatonic University. Many of Lovecraft's stories take place in this fictional school, and this story is the first one to feature the college. There is a Dr. Herbert West, whose interest is found in reviving human bodies from the dead, because after all, our bodies are just complex but organic machines. West has created a serum to do just that, to revive them. There's also a Dean Halsey, the Dean of Miskatonic University's medical school. He's going to die. The book gives him a different reason than the movie. In the book, Dean dies of overworking during a typhoid epidemic and is a community hero. West reanimates him out of respect. Not the same motivation in the movie, for sure. I'll get to that. And then, the book has a narrator who worked somewhat against his will with Dr. West. The movie gives this character a name, Dan Kane. The similarities are drawing to a close. Both Lovecraft's Reanimated and Gordon's Reanimated are wild, violent, and near uncontrollable. They shriek as if in pain, tortured by what they have seen or not seen, or physical pain or something. They are wretched creatures. So Lovecraft had a seed of an idea, but Stuart Gordon wonderfully made it interesting. A couple of things that Lovecraft never did well. Number one, he wasn't good at creating characters that the reader liked. He just didn't care about character development. It was always a means to an end for the reader to come to the evil that would drive people mad. Even the heroes of the stories were boring and bland. And number two, and this is related to what I just said, he didn't care to write about human relationships either. Not love, not sex, not passion. Those themes rarely showed up in his works. I haven't read all his stories, granted, though I work on a few of them every year or so. I think of my favorite story of Lovecraft's, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, whose inhabitants had made it fish gods from the sea. Lovecraft also wrote a story called The Lurking Fear, which was adapted into a 1997 movie called Hemoglobin, which was shot in my hometown. It's a bad movie. But it's got my hometown in it. Anyway, The Lurking Fear essentially revolves around generations of a family who have inbred until they are grotesque monsters. That's all I can think of at the moment. If you've read any Lovecraft that could illuminate this discussion, I would love to hear from you. Email me at zombiesofromage at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Anyway, Lovecraft didn't know a lot about healthy relationships. I don't think. And he didn't write any. In other words, the motivations in the movie would certainly not have been conceived by Lovecraft. But the relationships give the movie depth and meaning, so they matter. So here's one instance where the movie is better than the source material. So, Dr. Herbert West, who had been doing research overseas, arrives at Miskatonic University, eager to learn. Dean Halsey introduces him to Dan Kane, a budding student at the school, and Dr. Carl Hill, one of the professors there. West and Hill begin to butt heads immediately. West is a young doctor challenging Hill's teaching about the brain, the will, and death in general. Dean Halsey has a daughter, Megan, who is in a secret relationship with Dan Kane. West moves in with Dan as a roommate. In the process, he finds out that Dan and Megan are sleeping with each other, a fact that he uses as leverage to keep Dan quiet about the crazy experiments that West is doing with a glow-in-the-dark serum and dead creatures.
Meanwhile, Dr. Hill, Dr. West's nemesis and Dean Halsey's good friend, has a thing for Megan Halsey. This is a really creepy thing. There's a real-life age difference between the actors of 22 years, probably a similar one in the movie. Plus, his buddy's daughter? No thanks. Four main roles are an intricate interweaving of relationships and motivations, but apart from that, the plot's pretty straightforward. West has moderate success in reviving Dan's cat from the dead. We assume that West was not lying when he said that he just found the cat dead and he didn't kill it. But bringing it back from the dead was not quite what West wanted. It went mad, attacking him, clinging to his back. Think of the National Lampoon's Christmas vacation scene where the squirrel that jumps out of the tree is running around on Clark Griswold's back. Well, that same kind of thing, except picture a dead cat clinging to a doctor's back running around in the basement. Dan and West manage to kill the cat again, and then West brings it back to life again with his serum, making Dan a believer. West recruits his roommate to help him find freshly dead bodies because he thinks that the time passing between death and reanimation is what makes the revived go crazy and violent. So they sneak into the university morgue and revive a corpse whose body has a surprisingly great deal of strength, especially for a previously dead guy. Dean Halsey enters the fray and ends up dead too. Desperate, West uses his serum on Dean Halsey. He hopes that a very fresh specimen may show more success. Uh, nope. The previously calm, cool, and collected Halsey becomes a raving maniac. Things keep getting worse and worse. Dr. Hill, as a favor to his friend, takes care of the dean and lobotomizes him. In the process, he finds out that the dean wasn't crazy. The dean is dead. And he realizes that Dr. West has done it. Hill tries to blackmail West because a discovery like this is huge. West fights back and nails Hill with a shovel, and then he takes the shovel blade and cuts off Hill's head, decapitates the guy. Now, storytelling is a funny thing. The audience has not been rooting for Hill all this time, and we're still not. Meanwhile, West is abrasive, manipulative, and impulsive, and yet the audience doesn't hate him. It's like watching a car accident or watching the coronavirus numbers rising daily, it's hard to turn away from such a train wreck of a guy. You keep thinking, oh no, he shouldn't have done that. But you never really watch this movie and think that West is the villain of the tale. Not the hero, but he's not the villain. So, because West is a scientist, he experiments. He injects both the severed head and the body of Dr. Hill with his reanimation serum. And it's at this point that the movie becomes a comedy. I mean, it's been a little silly up until now. It's been, in the words of one reviewer, absurd. But when the body rises up from the floor without a head, while the head is sitting in a tray on the table, well, it jumps into comedy mode. The body, taking orders from the head via telepathy or something, knocks West out cold and the undead Dr. Hill becomes a monster. I mean, he was a creep before, but now he's a real monster. So the body of Dr. Hill carries away the head of Dr. Hill, and he carries away West's serum, and he carries away West's notes also. Hill does brain surgery on other cadavers and gains telepathic mind control over them too. 
Hill orders Halsey to get Megan, who ends up unconscious. The next thing you know, Megan Halsey is lying on the operating table, strapped down and completely naked. Dr. Hill's body is moving his head over Megan, licking her and leaving a bloody trail behind. It's pretty gross out. And then the body moves to put the head between her spread legs. This scene is mentioned in the 1999 film American Beauty, where two of the characters who are high on pot are remembering this nutso scene. So just then, West and Dan appear, saving Megan from this horrible fate. Hill commands the cadavers to attack, and there's this crazy action scene. West eventually defeats Hill by giving him a lethal dose of the serum, but, but then Hill's intestines come to life and drag West away. But as they say in the business, if you don't see a body, don't assume that they're dead. There are two sequels to this movie. And not even Dan or Megan end up happily ever after. The movie ends on a minor chord and no one's really happy at the end. It is a true horror story. But it never drags on. It moves by at such a quick pace that the hour and a half feel much shorter. The website Rotten Tomatoes writes this about Reanimator. Perfectly mixing humor and horror, the only thing more effective than Reanimator's gory scenes are its dry, deadpan jokes. The absurdity of the movie carries the humor, like the hypothetical note, Cat dead, details later. Or the cat on West's back. Or the lumbering, clumsy body trying to take orders from a severed head. Or West getting frustrated that Hill's severed head isn't sitting up in the tray. Oh man, this is a mighty fun flick. Jeffrey Combs makes a great Herbert West. He's a crazy character, and Combs could have been ridiculous with him. But he carried a weight and intensity that made you like West, in spite of who he was and what he was doing. He's become a legend in the business, Jeffrey Combs says. He's performed in dozens of horror movies. He's played H.P. Lovecraft himself, and starred in several Lovecraft-inspired movies. He's played nine characters in the Star Trek universe, becoming the first actor in Star Trek history to play two unrelated recurring characters in the same episode, the Vorta clone Weyoun and the Ferengi Brunt. David Gale played the lecherous Dr. Hill. He reprised his role in 1989's Bride of Reanimator. I haven't seen this movie yet, but it hasn't gone down in history as a must-see zombie movie. He passed away in 1991. He made a very good villain. From the leers and the falsely compassionate gestures to the outright lust and abandon. Bruce Abbott, who played Dan, and Barbara Frampton, who played Megan, were also very good. They were serious, but not too serious. They are believable and honest, and they were both excellent performances. The special effects in this movie are really very good. Because they're all practical, there is a sense of realism that stands the test of time. Think back to another movie from the year before, one that had a bigger production budget, a bigger profit, and a bigger cultural impact. Ghostbusters. Now, 36 years later, still a lot of Ghostbusters holds up well. The Marshmallow Man still looks good. Slimer is not too bad. The streams are decent. but. Think about what time 
hasn't been kind to. The dogs. Watching it now, the devil dogs are really hard to ignore. They don't carry any threat except for the growls. The dog in the bedroom when Rick Moranis throws the jacket on it, that was good, but that was also real. But when it was bursting out of the out of the room and running down the hall and and no, no. When the dog is chasing him, no. When effects are based in reality, and not just on computer screens, it's better. Think of the aliens in the original trilogy of Star Wars compared to the special editions that came out in 1997. Think Jabba the Hutt in 1983, in all his glory as the mobster, compared to the scene in 1997's special version of A New Hope, when Han and Jabba are chatting in the spaceport. You're a wonderful human being, you know, and he steps over the tail. And, uh, so just thinking of the, of the differences... So Dr. Hill's body carrying his head looks crazy because it's such a bizarre idea, but it looks as if it could really happen. Hill's head sitting in the lab tray soaking up blood looks as if it were really happening. The fact that the filmmaker spent time studying how blood pooled in dead bodies and then recreated that effect with the makeup team, that's really impressive. That is an attention to detail that makes this movie shine. The score music is really, really good. Richard Band took three and a half weeks to compose the score for Reanimator. He said at the time, The film is so unique from the standpoint that it's so gory and so bizarre that there's no way I felt I could approach it seriously. Therefore, I decided to use a lot of humor in the music. And besides that, do some musically outlandish things, some very weird rhythms and stuff, a lot of electronics, and really go what I would describe as overboard when it comes to questionable musical tastes. My approach was to match some of the bizarreness of the movie, but to add a lot of humor that I didn't feel came through as much as it would with humorous music. End quote. Now, if you listen to the score, you'll notice that it sounds really similar to the theme for Psycho, composed by Bernard Herrmann. That was on purpose. He continued, When looking at this movie, the nature of the character of Herbert West is a psychotic sort of maniac, and behind him he has this driving force. To me, when I saw that, the driving force that's the main title of Psycho fit him perfectly. Therefore, I used that as a base and modified the theme, but kept that Hermanesque feeling. I put my own theme in it, but I wanted that momentum there to create that psychotic movement that described the Herbert West character, end quote. So you should go listen to the theme again on YouTube right now. I'd play it for you, but, you know, copyright stuff, not wanting a cease and desist order, all that jazz. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. I wasn't sure what to pick for the gotcha moment. There were so many awesome and gruesome death scenes in this movie that it was hard to choose. The cold opening with the exploding eyes, that was good. They did some fun stuff with the cat. That huge, bulky cadaver played by an actor who was actually Arnold Schwarzenegger's body double in The Terminator. That guy died really well. 
that was a really good death, actually. The electric bone saw cutting through the guy's torso was some pretty awesome special effects. But I'm going to lean toward the moment when the reanimated Dean Halsey places Dr. Hill's skull in his grip and pokes the eyes out and he crushes the skull and then throws it out of the room into the hall against the wall. That was really a clump of raw hamburger in a wig, but it was a good effect. So, cheers to Dr. Hill's head. Rest in peace. Now it's time to pair this movie with a cheese. My first thought was head cheese. Because, well, obviously. But head cheese isn't really cheese. It's meat made from the head of a calf or a pig. And since we're in difficult times and some foods are harder to come by these days, you know what? I'm going to be a good neighbor and I'm going to leave that head cheese in the deli department so that others who appreciate it more will not have to go without it. That's the kind of guy I am. So what will I pair this movie with? Well, what I'm going to do is take extra old cheddar cheese with red wine. I don't mean a glass of red wine. I mean the the wine is infused right into the cheese. It has veins of red wine trickling through the firm and kind of crumbly texture. It gives the cheese a fruity and tangy flavor and a rich aroma. So the rivers of red flowing through the cheese will remind the eater of the gallons of gore running through this movie. I'm going to eat the cheese infused with red wine with a dry pita chip and a slice of apple to enhance the sweetness of the cheese. Here we go. Mm. It has a tang more than just the old cheddar. I mean, I really like extra old cheddar anyway. It's one of my favorites. But the red wine gives it just a little bit of a fruity, sweet flavor to it. The Reanimator is a bloody fun romp where horror blends with comedy and produces a satisfying result. The zombies are not some plague on humanity like an infection, but they're certainly not creatures that you would want to meet in a dark alley either. More like Frankenstein than The Walking Dead, but a must-see for fans of zombie lore. Tell me what you think of the movie. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Or you can email me at zombiesofromage at gmail.com. I'll leave you with this quote. Myra Grant said, Nothing is impossible to kill. It's just that sometimes after you kill something, you have to keep shooting it until it stops moving. I'm Pat Cook, and I hope you fare well. Things aren't going too bad. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. You had a gun, shoot him in the head. Are they slow moving, Chief?